Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. This week I'm talking with illustrator Amber Vittoria. Amber and I chat about focusing her illustrations to celebrate the diversity of the female form, why she chooses to create art and illustrations that speak to issues women face, exploring new illustration styles and experimenting with painting, and more all right after this. It's no secret that I love Jack Prince. They're a longtime sponsor of the podcast and Creative South. Plus, they do great work. Whether they're making our pop-up displays and tablecloths or printing notebooks, Jack Prince is always there when we need them. This year, they are printing new Creative South t-shirts for me and the podcast stickers. They have a coupon code on the back that gives you a great discount on all of their products just in time for Creative South. Speaking of stickers, Jack Prince will print any kind, shape, size, or stock, including full-color stickers with full-color liner prints for you to use as product labels, promotions, bumper stickers, hang tags, business cards, and more. Right now, you can get 500 3x3-inch die-cut stickers starting at $149. Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South Podcast listeners 15% off all orders, over $25, when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. If you like the Creative South podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South podcast swag. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else. A shout out on the podcast thanking you for your support. Creative South Podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash creative south. Amber, thanks for uh, joining me today. It's, uh, it's good to finally connect with you. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. You're welcome. So why don't we dive right into things and tell me, where did you grow up? So I grew up like an hour and a half north of New York City in mm-hmm. a town called Carmel, New York. Okay. And, and we, when I was younger, we moved from Carmel to Patterson, but it was all in the same school district. Gotcha. A little bit suburban, a little bit rural. Sure. So so what, you said about an hour and a half? Yeah. Okay. That's not bad. So you can make a day trip down to the city and get some culture and then escape the hustle and bustle and and go back and feel safe in the uh, suburban (laughs) roads. Yeah, we did that a lot when I was younger. And then I always knew I wanted to live in the city. So that's where I am now. But it's nice because my parents still live there. So it's super easy to be able to go visit them. Mm Mm-hmm. So when when you were growing up, what type of kid were you? What were you into? Yeah. I loved being outside. I played a lot of sports. I wasn't particularly good at any of the sports I played, but I, I know that feeling playing. well. <laughs> I uh I loved soccer. I when I got a bit older, I ran track and cross country. I still run very slowly, but I love it. <laughs> um I also loved drawing and painting. Um, it took a lot of energy for my parents to make sure that it did not draw on the walls. I did mm-hmm. that once and my mom was like, no, <laughs> she's like, that's beautiful, but that's what paper is for. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's a rite of passage for any kid is to do something yeah. like that. 
and you're like, oh, well, luckily it, you know, wasn't too much of a pain to take off. Um, but I loved drawing, uh, being outside. Um, some of my favorite shows. I used to love Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not too sure why, because I do not like anything scary yeah, but on that television now. Yeah, I mean, that was kid level scary and yeah, exactly even that even then it wasn't like <laughs> that's it was very geared towards you know this might startle you a little but you're not gonna have nightmares about it exactly yeah um i but i would say for the most part i would definitely always be outside playing with my younger brother or running around or i don't know or drawing yeah mm-hmm so so as you're growing up and getting into high school and things like that are you taking a bunch of art classes at that point or what? Cause I, I sent over a questionnaire to you and you, and you talked about loving math. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Oh yeah. So I started drawing at a very young age and mm-hmm. I loved being in art class. When I was younger, I took art classes outside of school and it was always something really enjoyable to me, but I also, did love mathematics and science. And Mm -hmm. as I grew older, I realized that I loved science and math because I excelled at it, Uh not because I loved the problem solving and the like hypothesizing aspect of math, which is what you should love if you become a mathematician or a scientist, because you're going to eventually get to a level where you're not going to excel because you're trying to solve problems that have yet to be solved. So whereas with art, I loved it regardless if I struggled with it, if I made a piece that wasn't as strong as it could be, I still loved it. So the process of art making for me is something that I've always been in love with. Whereas like with math and with science and history and other subjects, I loved that I excelled at it versus loving it for itself. So that's as I grew older, I realized that, art was the path for me because it's something I loved unconditionally, if that sure. makes sense. When when you when you got out of high school, did you go to college? And if so, what did you study? I went to Boston University's College of Fine Arts and my major was in graphic design. Gotcha. And the beauty of that program and in part why I feel that I'm uh, an illustrator is because the first <laughs> few years of our program was really rooted in printmaking, painting, drawing, and sculpture. And then Mm. in the latter part of the program, that's when they started to introduce um, design thinking and design techniques and typography and elements of the like. So I feel that majority of my graduating class either had a very illustrative Mm -hmm. design style or just full on eventually became illustrators in their adult life. Do you, I mean, do you think that's, specifically because of the way it was developed of you're doing all this hands-on stuff first before you're even getting to computers and thinking of grids and structure and and hierarchy. I think so. I, I guess it depends on the person because there are people that are UX developers and designers that sure. I graduated with. Um, but for me in particular, I do think that's why because as much as I love – and I use design thinking in my art making, mm-hmm. uh, minus the grid that that I take away from my <laughs> illustrations. Um, yeah, if but, people if people look at your illustration stuff, they're gonna, where's the grid? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like you don't see it. Um, 
Yeah, but in terms of like hierarchy and color theory, um, I and then when I do play with typography in some of my pieces, those are all elements that I do pull from my design training. Mm-hmm. But I feel that because the initial introduction to thinking creatively was very much rooted in more of a fine art world, I definitely feel that that impacted me somehow. Sure. So as as you're kind of wrapping up school and you're developing art, do you, in that program, start focusing more on the illustrative side of things? Or are you relying really heavy on the design theory and all that while you're in school when you get towards the end of the program? Definitely towards the end is more heavy in design sure. theory. Well, I'm not, I'm not speaking of the curriculum. I'm your interest. For me? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a healthy combo. My senior thesis was mainly sculptural. Like, yeah. I felt like because I was in those four years in school, I was like, this is probably going to be the only opportunity for a while where you have all of these resources to mm-hmm. make whatever you your mind can think of. So I think that I loosely took design theory and then applied it to the art that I made. So in hindsight, I definitely kind of rebelled against the design uh, thesis when I graduated, but I loved how learning the design process, because I feel like that has definitely helped me in my practice today. But yeah, I loosely took it, even though we probably should have taken it a bit more heavily than I did. Sure. When you when you get out of college, what do you start doing? So I was fortunate enough to uh, my parents let me move back home for a year, and I knew that I wanted to eventually. Is that fortunate create- or punishment when you're in twenties? <laughs> I, I think it's fortunate because I have a lot of um, friends and people that I know that their parents are very, very much like you are an adult. You need to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, being in college debt and trying to find a job and adulting and living on your own all at once, at least sure. for me, I felt like would have been a bit overwhelming. So it was nice to be able to come home and then figure out the job and the debt situation mm-hmm. while being at home. Um, yeah, some people might have think that's a punishment, but I'm fortunate <laughs> to also have a very close relationship with my parents. So, I mean, I um, love, I love my parents, but not right after college, but shortly, <laughs> shortly after college, I went to work for a startup that folded and it happened to be in the same town and you know, that my parents live in. And, you know, I, I, basically ended up having to move back in with them Mm. and there were some aspects of it that were great it was nice you know seeing my folks again but then there were some aspects of it where it was like okay i feel like i'm a teenager again why Uh, why after you know i think it was like seven or eight years at that point of having you know been out on my own Mm. i'm including college in that too but you know why am I having to tell you what time I'm going to be home? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I'm um, an adult. I, I'll, you know, if I need and I think, And I think that was the nice thing, too. My parents were very much like, you know, you're an adult, but we all we all live together. So they weren't. And I definitely didn't feel like I was back um, being a teenager. But it was nice because I knew I always wanted to freelance and work mm-hmm. for myself. But I felt that I needed to work with other people and learn from other people 
first because at that time sure. I loved illustration, but I yeah, I was 22. I had no idea what I really wanted to do yet. So um, I would say about six months after I graduated, I freelanced like, you know, quick jobs here and there. But I got my first like full time job as a web designer at Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. And then I was about I was there for about a year and a half. So about a half year into that, I moved to the city just because the commute got to be a bit tough. It I was like, av- yeah, it was about four hours a day. So two hours Ooh. there, two hours back. Plus, yeah. Um, and it added up. So it was only not too much more to, you know, split an apartment in Astoria and mm-hmm. it like cut the commute down to like a quarter of what it was. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I learned a lot at Victoria's secret. Um, and then, at that point in my life, when I left, I wanted to work on more than one brand. I felt that challenging my mind in that way is something that I hadn't done up until that point. So mm-hmm. I left for an agency called VaynerMedia. Mm-hmm. They're a social media ad agency. Yeah, Gary, and, Gary Vaynerchuk. And, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, uh, he started that. When I joined, they were probably like 300 people. Uh, and now I believe they're well over a thousand. It's wild. And it's interesting to see when I was there, people were like social media advertising. What on this good God earth is that? And I was like, you know, advertising on the internet. Well, it's <laughs> so weird to see him come from basically he's running a wine store with his family. Yeah. Putting that online and then somehow parlaying that into this media empire. I still don't understand how that happened and how that worked. Uh, I feel like he, so in short, like he made uh, videos on YouTube for his father's wine company. And then other companies were like, oh, whoa, you grew your father's business. How much by doing that? Can you Mm -hmm. do that for us? And so I feel like that's how it started. And then him and he and his brother started VaynerMedia Mm -hmm. and they hired a lot of his brother's friends, one of whom is my boyfriend. That's how we met. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, and then it kind of snowballed into this, um, agency that now represents huge clients on all their social and digital platforms. And, um, I was there for about two and a half years and I learned the most there um, than any of, I worked three full-time jobs before I am doing what I'm doing now. Um, I learned the most there and being able to learn how to leverage a platform to build an audience for yourself. That's really where, um, I learned how to do that from Vayner. Um, but at that point, at the end of Vayner media, I kind of got to the point where I was illustrating a bit more, but I didn't have that much time to put that work out there because agency hours can be tough. So, I took a step back. I'm like, you, you know, you're not really happy. You're working long hours. The work you're producing isn't something that, you know, you are proud of. You love illustrating, but you're not doing that anymore. What can you do to get back on the track of illustrating and putting that work out there? So I found um, a design job at Avon. Mm-hmm. They're an old school beauty company. And the beauty of that job, even though it was a step back in title as an art director at Vayner, um, the pay was about the same, which was great. And the hours were nine to five. So really getting a significant chunk Instead of time. Instead of working agency hours where it's, you know, Anything. 9 a.m. until. Yeah. Until. Whenever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or if you're in a photo shoot, it could be early in the morning to late at night. Yeah. Um, but. 
when I got the job at Avon, I get in around 8.30, I'd leave at 4.30. So they were very flexible. And then in the early morning hours and then the hours after work, when I normally have been at an agency and then exhausted from being at an agency, that's when I started to illustrate Mm -hmm. more heavily and put my work out there and start freelancing for different clients and starting to build this roster slash community and getting my work out there. Um, to the point where um, last December I left and now I do it full time. So. so so, as you're at Avon, is that when you start kind of figuring out, had you already determined or, or figured out for yourself what your style was before no. Avon or did this happen kind of while you were? While I was there, I would say. So I remember I have a distinct memory of right after I left Vayner, and started at Avon. I'm like, well, now I have all this free time. Mm-hmm. What is my style? I draw in my sketchbooks. I draw for myself, for you know, close family and friends. But, but what I haven't drawn, I haven't had time to draw like this in this abundance in so long. So I remember having a distinct memory being like, what is my style? And then another distinct memory being like, you know what? It's okay. You don't know. Just draw let it out, look at your old sketchbooks, see if there are any patterns on how you approach, you know, figures and other elements, what's important to you, what subject matter do you want to convey in your illustrations. And then I started to take it from there and it just naturally happened. I drawing women and going to different museums and seeing the lack of representation of female artists in these museums, but having most of the artwork be of women like, this is so inaccurate. This <laughs> societal expectation for women is so narrow. And I don't know. Women... I think it's a fairly accurate uh, representation of how society looks at women, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but like, this is like, this is not how women are. No, no right? I, yeah. I completely agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, this isn't right. Like, this isn't how women are. And so I was like, I think that it would be interesting to have portray women from a woman's perspective. So that's really how my subject matter started to come about and the style just kind of followed along with it. Mm -hmm. So we were talking before we hopped on air where I was trying to figure out who your style (laughs) reminded me of. Yeah. And I've been scrolling through and it's, it's, it's this weird combination of, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Patisse or Patisse, Matisse and Picasso. I was trying to, I was trying to combine the two. <laughs> they had a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and a bit of Gauguin there after his, you know, Tahitian era. Um, and very much Picasso definitely before the heavy cubism phase where everything was so linear and all. Um, was that a conscious decision or was that a, I mean, was that something that they had influenced? How did, how did that style seep in? Cause it's definitely not, it's reminiscent of it. It's not a ripoff of it. I want to make that clear. It's it's, but it's it, it very much evokes that early Similar era where, emotion. yeah, where it's almost this Dada approach and 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 it, I'm I'm blanking on the other one, the post expressionism pre cubism phase, um, but the line work on it is just you know fascinating because it's it's. It's very controlled yet very rustic. Thank you. I it wasn't intentional. I feel that um, when I started 
drawing more heavily, I referenced older sketchbooks. And when I drew portraits, I really was drawn to the beauty of imperfection mm-hmm. in the figures I was depicting and really leaning into that imperfection because I feel that's important, um, especially in media and society, you know, women being put on this pedestal of like, this is perfect. You need to be hairless. You need to pee size zero. Your face needs to be perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. There, that's, there, A, is no such thing as perfection and B, to have all of those things is impossible. I have not met a woman that is that. So for me, every woman is even supermodels are not that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. For me, every woman is beautiful and leaning into what society would deem as imperfect and really drawing that out and Mm -hmm. really making that prominent in my work is important. So I feel like that is translated into like a controlled, but organic type line or brushstroke depending on the piece that I'm working on Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense but in terms of like mirroring Picasso or mirroring um, Matisse I love their work and I'm a fan of both but for me it's interesting I I don't look to other artists before I make work because I don't want to be directly influenced by them I tend to look at um, other type, other forms of art, whether it's writing or music or television or just observing people on the street. And then that way I let that influence my line and my, um, art making. Mm-hmm. As, as you were developing your visual style, you know, where did the subject matter come from? Cause I know you've done a lot of pieces for big companies and things like that. And I'm, you know, with that stuff, I'm sure you're given direction of, you know, like any commercial illustrator, this is what we're trying to convey. This is what the product is, things like that. But there's, it, it it's very odd to see someone whose style is so uniform um, across all things. And I, I think that's a good thing. That's not a, that's not a criticism. That's, um, from your personal style to the, a lot of the more corporate stuff like that, it's very much you like it's, you can tell yeah. who, who did it and it all has, you know, that, that what you were talking about with expressing women's role in society and, you know, breaking down these norms and things like that. How did that, how did that come about? Cause I mean, it's not just, that's not just sitting in an art museum looking at, you know, representation. Yeah. So for me, I've been very fortunate that, um, to work with editorial clients and brands that have a similar ethos and, um, perspective on breaking those societal tropes that are set upon women. So I, my first client was man repeller. They are a, I'm not familiar um, with them. They are an online um, publication for women started by uh, Leandra Medine. And Mm. it's about fashion and life and livelihood and very much for women, I would say, in their 20s and 30s, but not limited to. And they, again, being very closely aligned to how I, you know, to what I'm conveying in my work, started to give me um, articles that were within that realm, which was really wonderful. And then from there, I feel like, you know, client B sees that I've worked for client A, and then I continue to get more work within that realm. 
Um, I've with that, I've also said no to projects that I felt that didn't quite make sense for me. Like if I was asked to draw a subject matter that I didn't feel would resonate with me, knowing that it wouldn't make a good piece, I normally tend to pass on a project like that, which is super risky because sure. my livelihood relies on getting work. But sure, I'm, I'm I curious would, as what would be something, an example, and you don't have to name people or anything like that, but. Uh, what would be something you would turn down that whether it doesn't resonate with you or may even go against kind of what you're trying to portray? Mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough that nothing has gone against anything that I've tried to portray, which is wonderful. I think that shows a progression in how society views women. Um, but a good sure. example is a, a recent client, or potential client came to me and they're like, we would love for you to illustrate these animals. And I did one animal illustration years ago. And I think it's the only animal illustration on my website. <laughs> and it was, and it, it was fine, but it was something for me that the particular animals that they wanted me to depict was something that I was like, I don't know, like it could be a fun experiment. Um, and sometimes I do that. I'll do like fun experiments, but it just was something that didn't click for me. I was was like, it I don't horses? Wanna... I hate drawing horses. It was actually one of them was a seahorse. Oh, what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that qualifies as horse category. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and like the idea was really beautiful. And I think they might go with another illustrator on it and it'll come out in a while. So I don't want to give it all away. But sure. it was a really beautiful idea, but it wasn't for me right. as an illustrator. So, um I passed on that. So I feel that, you know, every so often you get projects like that, but I'd say for the overwhelming most part, people are like, we really love your work. We really love what your work stands for. We want you to make something like that for our brand under these types of guidelines. So I've been very fortunate that, um, to have so many clients that resonate with what I make. When, when you're working with these clients, how do you keep yourself from being repetitive and you know if some if you know two clients come to you with maybe not the strongest brief um and they say you know we want to be about empowering women and we're in the fitness you know realm and basically that's all they give you how do you how are you creating something unique for each client where it still very identifiably comes from you but it's also very identifiable that it is a voice for the client. Sure. I feel that most clients tend to come with a brief that is a bit more robust. They'll sure. be like, we love your work. We love pieces A, B, and C the most because of the color palette or the way that you portrayed the figure or what have you. But in an event where they would come with a looser brief, what I do is come up with several really rough pencil sketches of concepts. Mm -hmm. And that's where I really allow myself to play. It's like, what can we do that we haven't done before that makes sense for this brand? And then I'll kind of go off of one sketch into another idea, into a third idea. And then once I have several, I 
pick two or three of the strongest and those are the ones I present. So really in the ideation and sketching phase, that's when I allow myself to kind of explore beyond something that I've already made. But with that, I try not to punish myself if I am making something that is a bit similar because <laughs> sure. I do feel like in the world of the internet and putting out content, new content every single day, there is this pressure to come up with something new mm. and different and better. And I feel that Yes, that's wonderful, but you are the same person and you, you know, your work will look similar just because it comes from you. So trying not to put too much pressure on being radically different than a piece that I made a day ago or a week ago. So it's a balance of both. Gotcha. Because I know, I mean, not that I do a ton of illustration stuff and my style is definitely nothing like yours. It is, you can very much tell that I am a graphic designer who can illustrate a little bit Got when it. I do stuff. It, it's, you know, I, I wish I could give a specific example because I can't, <laughs> I, I mean, I could, but I can't talk about it. <laughs> I hear um, you. And, you know, I, I find it very hard not to repeat myself or, you know, look like it's just an extension of a previous thing that I've done. Um, and, and that, that, that's a huge challenge for me. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we talked about how, how do you keep from punishing yourself with it? I guess is the best way, you know, how do you quiet that voice in your mind? (laughs) Yeah. So a good example is recently, I just put out a piece, um, I feel what's trending in fashion, it's been for a minute, are the like the clunkier, heavier shoes that reference the 80s and the early 90s, very hip hop culture. Um, And I put a pair of those shoes in the piece that I posted today. And then I started another piece that does another different type of pair of those shoes. And I was like, oh, you just did something like that. It's similar in theme. Like you're kind of addressing the same thing, but... It's like, well, this obviously is important to me if I'm being drawn to doing it again. So for me, that's how I let it go. Like if I have a negative thought about a piece that I'm making, I let it settle and then I let it pass and try not to let it negatively affect my work. It's tough. It takes a lot of practice. Sometimes (laughs) I have to bounce that negative thought off of another person and have them tell me that like I need to quiet it. Um, But in time, it's just easier because eventually it will be different because Mm -hmm. you can never make the same exact thing twice. Sure. At least I can't. Some people probably can, but I am not one of them. So um, I I just see comfort in the fact that it will be different. And if it's a little more similar than I initially planned, that's okay too, as long as it's conveying the story that I need it to convey. Gotcha. As as you're expanding your voice in your personal work, what, what themes do you keep coming back to? For me, celebrating the diversity of the woman's body and the figure is something important. I Mm -hmm. feel that, uh, we continuously see advertise or I continuously see advertising that portrays women in a very specific way, which is Thin, tall, Caucasian, light hair, um, and hairless. Mm. And even now, and I feel that it's wonderful to start seeing advertising that is straying away from that, but not at a rate that 
it needs to be. It's tough to, you know, be out in the world and see the projection of what society thinks you should be. And if you don't fit into that, and mm-hmm. I'd feel like majority people don't. So really putting out work that women can relate to be like, Oh, that reminds me of myself. That's really important. And that's something that I always come back to mm-hmm. in my work. I think it's interesting because you do you are starting to see some brands move away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. You've got like Airy, that's the yeah the non photoshopped yeah, um, which I still call bullshit on because there's always Photoshop. They definitely do. They call, <laughs> I'm like you have to color correct your yeah. bras and underwear to make sure that if someone buys it online that it's the same color yeah. that you're yeah. ordering. And but I'm, I think I'm that pretty sure don't. that if somebody's got a breakout that day, they're gonna. Photoshop the zit out and stuff like that. I, that I would hope not. So I, I've looked at their advertising pretty closely and it looks like the only retouching they do is color correcting in terms of their actual garments, which I understand because you don't want people complaining that, yeah, oh, yeah. if photographs a little more gray than blue and it's more neon. No, and I, it, I forgive that stuff. That, yeah, that is but just I would, a, I would hope that they don't. That's my hope, my positive hope that they leave it unretouched, but only those retouchers will know. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. But, um, well, and not that anybody's ever calling me for modeling, but dear Lord, I, you know, if I've ever got a zit, I want somebody covered up because I, (laughs) but I think, you know, but see, that's interesting because that thought is derived from most likely derived from people telling you that having acne is bad. Obviously, painful acne, oh, sure. cystic acne is that's tough. I've had that, and that's painful. Oh yeah, I had, I had to do but, the whole tetracycline as a kid and everything. Yeah. yeah, but like having regular acne, like that's beautiful and that's part of life. And depending on your skin and how it reacts to certain elements, like you shouldn't feel that you need to cover that up. Only if you want to, like you shouldn't feel pressure to cover it up because other people say it's bad. So that's something that I and you know I feel like especially being a woman that ideal of like, oh, this is bad. That is bad. Applies to every part of my body. So being able to break that thought and what society tells you Mm -hmm. is bad or is ugly or isn't good enough to break away from that thought is important. So that's why that always kind of comes full circle into my work. Sure. I I, I mean, I definitely can see that. I I mean, Hey, I'm a guy, so I'm not experiencing it from that point of view. Um, But yeah, I would agree that, you know, the acne thing, but it's also a a, I'm a very self-conscious person for me, and this is just for me. Um, and me being a guy, I'm I'm a fairly insecure, self-conscious person to begin with. So I don't know, you know, how much of that comes from societal norms and how much of that just comes from personal. Personal. You know, I'm for sure. I'm 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 a hundred percent sure there is a mix of it. I just don't know, you know what the per yeah, yeah what that course. percentage is. So definitely. But there's a you know, not just airy, but like I don't know if you've been to Target recently, and they're definitely not doing it as heavily as Aerie did, but they've changed out all of their mannequins where they're especially, well, let me rephrase. They've changed out all of their female mannequins where, you know, they tend to be more, I wouldn't say more, more realistic, but I mean, it's still idealized, but it's, they're more, they're more normal sizes. Like they're you know they're still ridiculously tall um (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but I feel like all mannequins are ridiculously tall. I'm like, I'm a tall human being, and that's tall. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I am not a tall human being. I am completely average. I'm five nine barely. Um, you know, and that's if I've been laying down all day. <laughs> and and yeah, when I go in there, I just feel short, even compared to the women's mannequins. And it's 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 weird because in real life. I know a handful of women who are taller than me. You know, I know plenty who are very similar height to me, but I know a ton that are shorter. So why don't they make mannequins of varied heights and not just kids mannequins? That doesn't count. Yeah, but, no, for sure. That is interesting. Yeah, I feel like I do living in the city. I do most of my shopping online. So that I'm going to pay attention to that next time. I can't do that. Um, I'm too fat to do the clothes things online. I, I've got to try it on. I order I order from like the same brands. <laughs> Once I know my size, I'm like, that is it. Order four of them. That'll um, do it. Yeah. <laughs> or if I'm unsure if they have a good return policy, I'll order like three sizes and like kind of bracket like you do in photography, but with clothing. <laughs> I um, just don't have that much cash on hand. <laughs> I know that's the only risk. You're like, I hope this gets back to them. <laughs> oh crap, they changed their return policy. <laughs> yes. Oh, you can't return that. I always make sure I do my due diligence in that. Uh, but that's interesting about the mannequins yeah i'm gonna pay attention especially at target you said i'm gonna pay attention yeah to they've, they've changed them up where on. it's and it's you know like it used to be and it was always weird in the maternity section they never had mannequins that looked like they were pregnant which was the dumbest thing in the world now they have mannequins that look like they're pregnant and they come in different physical sizes of them you know some are more of a you know they're not a size six. They're a size 10 or 12, which I still realize is, especially in this day and age, is below average for what it is. But, you know, there's. They're even, progressing. Bond. They're progressing and there's and they vary it up. So it's you can have two mannequins in the same section that aren't going to be the same size. Which is which is really neat. I need to pay attention next time I visit my parents. I'm like, we're taking a trip to Target. <laughs> well, you got to make sure that it's one of the Targets that they've redone. Oh, oh, go so they're going through like a re yeah. Re the, the entire corporation is going through and redoing all of the Targets. Oh wow! So I'll give it a little bit. Which makes shopping at Target hell at the moment. <laughs> Depending on which one you go that's, to. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> my my kids are very discombobulated because they always want to go to the toy section. And the toy section is in a completely different part of the store. And than it confused. used to be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the worst. I used to hate that as a kid. Like, why move it? And, they're like, well, they're and they've got like half of it's like in those storage, those you know shipping containers that are on in yeah. front of the store. So it's, you know, like a half a row of toys and then a bunch of board games. And they're not even good board games. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, no, I had to pay attention. Yeah. I, me ordering everything offline. No, next time I go, I'm going to take note of that. Yeah. So so getting back on track here, with with the development of your voice and, and you know, kind of breaking down, I don't want to, standards would be, not because it's not norms, because if you look at a normal person, they're not built like like we talked about like the super like the standard yeah you know, it's you know standard is a great word i also use tropes yeah that or would, stereotypes yeah yeah but yeah. i like standard that's perfect. so so with taking aim at those and looking at those 
Were there certain themes that stood out above others to you that were more important to focus on? I think it depends on the piece that I'm making. A great example, circling back to acne, is something that I struggled with when I was younger Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, finding my self-worth and finding myself beautiful. So sometimes there's definitely a few pieces where that comes back around because even as an adult, I get acne. I have very Mm -hmm. oily skin. um, And instead of trying everything under the sun... Uh, I'm just kind of embracing when I, well. my skin, yeah. my, sk- and just em- my skin is terribly oily. So I yeah, understand. just like embracing it when it comes, being thankful that it's not painful <laughs> and then, you know, letting it, you know, go when it, um, when it passes. So certain pieces focus on that. Um, other pieces again, focus on the overall form, the full body I think is important. Um, And then also trying to, I try to leverage bright colors and Mm. very familiar iconography, especially within fashion, um, to draw attention to certain ideas. So the most recent piece that I made, um, I used the Balenciaga logo Mm -hmm. and had like those clunky Balenciaga shoes and really bright colors to get people drawn in. Like, oh, that piece is interesting. Oh, I assume that was a client piece. Oh, no. um, No, no, no. Hey, I mean, eventually one day. But um, so for me, like, wow, that's interesting. Oh, I recognize that logo. Oh, that's high end. That's fashion. Mm -hmm. And then pausing and then kind of realizing that, oh, this is by a a woman by a female artist. And she's talking about how of major permanent American and European collections, only three to five percent of those collections, those pieces are made by female artists. So Mm. I feel like a lot of my work, depending each piece can talk about um, a different specific topic, but overall like leveraging bright, fun, um, like enjoyable colors and palettes and icons, really talking about topics that are more serious that people would be a little bit more hesitant to talk about. Gotcha. I'm going to, I'm going to go back on fashion here again. I'm, I'm curious as to your take because I mean, fashion is still very, uh, very much a male-dominated industry. Yeah. Um, and and you know, with men designing for women, I, like, I I've never gotten the heavy hand in this. I like I have no problem with men designing for women in general, but that that innate understanding that comes with what a woman's needs are of you know. Not that not that every man has the same body and all, but there's a lot more uniformity that comes into a man's body because we don't have breasts and we don't have really hips. And so it's there's a lot more straight lines and it's easier to, you know, mass produce something for that than it is for a woman. How does what what are your feelings on that? And and how do you approach that in your work? For men being creative directors of women's brands that's actually something that i haven't given too much thought to i just feel that in general that if you look at the percentage of male creative directors in fashion brands to female creative directors way too many <laughs> yes it's similar very similar to the art world so in that regard i have given much thought to i think it's important yes. that large brands should be equally representing women and men Um, especially at the more senior levels Mm -hmm. in terms of men designing for women. 
because I am not a fashion designer, I would hope that they are skilled enough to know how to make clothing that fits women. However, I do find in general averaging. So most of the fashion industry, especially fast fashion is built on averaging. Mm -hmm. And when you average out, averaging actually started, I think in um, astronomy. Yeah. It started and I forget the name of the astronomer um, that averaged something in space because they didn't have the technology to measure, brought that to the military and he averaged out every soldier's chest size Mm -hmm. and then made uniforms off of that average and not one. Yeah. And this is civil war time too. Yeah. And like that average didn't perfectly fit any of those soldiers. Right. But because it is easy to mass produce and people could kind of fit into them. That's kind of eventually, I don't know the history between that soldier and now, but I'm going to safely make the jump that most fashion is made based on averaging, especially because of fast fashion and having an onslaught of seasons um, for the mass market. I feel like that creates a lot of disparity, not only for women, but also for men in terms of clothes that fit. Um, and especially if you're turning over clothes and we could, that's a whole other conversation about (laughs) the environment and pollution in fashion. Um, but I, well, I mean, yes, with averaging like men, women's, you know, clothing is in numeric sizes. I mean, not that there aren't shirts that are small, medium, large, extra large, all Mm. that stuff. But if you buy a blouse, it's generally it, it may not be in that size. If you buy a dress, it's definitely very oh, rarely. Oh, okay. Oh, I see like where that. you're going. Gotcha. So you know, I, yeah, I, yeah, I understand that. But and men's sizes are like the like the dimensions, like the like length, especially yeah. pants. It's yeah, you know. that that I have been frustrated by because a great example is um, and especially too because you know your size at least for me has affected my um, self esteem. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I used to have size four shorts and these are size ten. How's that possible? I no, can you're wear not both. A teenager anymore? Yeah, <laughs> but but it's like, but I can fit into both. I'm so confused. And then you start to gravitate towards brands that your size is, you know, smaller. But you're like, well, I'm the same body so for me yeah well yeah there's sorry not to interrupt but there's there's also vanity sizing and that's a lot more prevalent in women's fashion than it is in men's fashion not that it doesn't exist in men's fashion but yeah the whole there was an article i read it's been a couple years ago i don't remember but it was it talked specifically and that's where i learned about the averaging um it, it it talked about i lost my train of thought there <laughs> vanity sizing yeah it talked about vanity sizing and how a lot of brands especially brands that were geared towards not quite juniors but that in between uh, you know junior whatever the next stage late is. teens early 20s yeah that that is, there was an extreme push for vanity sizing to make girls feel better about being you know like you said a size four or something like that when in reality the clothes were actually a size 10 yeah and i i do what you're saying about how a lot of menswear is just like you know dimensions Mm -hmm. i tend to look for that now too like levi's jeans i buy you know they're like 29 and then i don't know i think 32 33 for me however though i feel like even within those dimensions i've learned that not all of them are true so some brands yeah they don't measure right (laughs) 
Yeah. So sometimes some brands I'm 29, some brands I'm 33 and I'm like, I measure my waist and I'm like, well, I'm really 30. I'm so confused. So yeah, but that all affects, at least for me, affects my self-esteem. So when I create work, I try to combat that negative sentiments. Like you are beautiful Mm -hmm. regardless of what pants size you are and regardless of what you know, the industry and the world tells you yes. is accepted as beautiful. Attitude so. may affect that, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I won't get into a political discussion at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as, as you're doing more and more client work and building things up in that arena, are there things that you're looking for like specific projects you're looking to take on specific types of projects you're looking to take on and, and follow up to that is, you know, are there, are there things about your style that you see evolving and possibly taking new directions? Yeah. So in regards to the client work, definitely work that speaks to the content of the work that I currently make. I would Mm -hmm. love to continue to work with fashion brands because I feel like that's where that whole image problem that we discussed begins Mm -hmm. is in advertising from these fashion brands to be able to work with them to create artwork that shows women as they are instead of women as society has set a standard for would help continue to kind of break down the fashion industry has built up in terms of portrayals of women. Um, but any type of project that kind of lives within that realm, I would love to work on in terms of my work developing. Um, I've been very interested in making paintings mm-hmm. and painted works instead of just digital works. Well, yeah, um, you have then, a very painterly style, so that can yeah. see that. And it's been, I mean, the reason why I haven't done it is I think just, because of spatial you, reasons. You live in an apartment in New York City? Yeah. And I just also, most of the people that I know and like my kind of network and world lives within more of the commercial space and not really in the fine art space. But I'm hoping mm-hmm. in the next year to take steps towards making paintings with these ideas and putting work, hopefully, in galleries and in museums that speak to the idea of this is a woman from a woman's perspective instead of Mm -hmm. this is a woman from a man's perspective. So, um, I'm hoping that will be the next step in evolution. I have like three huge canvases like stored in the corner over there. So hopefully I'm going to get to those in the next few weeks and kind of see what happens from there and see how that resonates within that world. So gotcha. We'll see. So I meant to ask you this earlier, but I want to go back to it. Was there a specific thing that when you were looking to talk about femininity and breaking down those standards and those tropes and, and stereotypes that set you on the path, um, aside from the fact that you're a woman? Anything in particular? Um, I would just say a culmination of personal experiences that I've had mm-hmm. in, re- you know, simple experiences in regards to like, you know, you know, what size am I or like being, you know, 
made fun of for my appearance. I was always, when I was younger, I was on the taller side. So mm-hmm. I was very much made fun of for my height. And I was like, oh. I wish I had that gr- Girls are supposed to be, sh- you know, on the more petite side. But then in turn, like you're saying, oh, men should be taller. And it's like, no, you are who you are. Like, mm-hmm. stop, stop putting other people down based on this completely irrational, you know, standard i'm going to use that word now for everything it's amazing yeah. uh, <laughs> standard that society has set for both genders and the reason why i speak mainly of women is because that comes from a personal experience and i could be very specific in talking about that universality sure. of how women are portrayed in society so i would say definitely a culmination of like little like anecdotal things that have happened to me as i've grown older and then also stories of women that i've met while traveling women that i'm close to in my life that inform the work that i make mm. So nothing well, specific, and, and part okay. of the reason I asked for that is because, like, I'm as we're talking, I'm looking through your stuff. But you have this huge theme of women with body hair, um, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm curious what you know what what brought that one up. So for that, I think there isn't uh, there isn't a like specific memory that I can recall. I just always remember uh, hating shaving up- your legs. Yeah, getting up and going to school and be like, I want to wear shorts. And it's like, oh, no, someone's definitely going to comment. I haven't shaved in a few days. Or, um, you know, wanting to wear a dress and be like, oh, I haven't shaved. Or forgetting to shave under my arms and be like, oh, God, hopefully no one saw the hair under my arms. And then realizing like, Also, oh, I if don't- someone's looking at your armpits, they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said that when I was younger. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I feel like the combination of just that pressure and then you see in commercials like women with like silky smooth legs and you know hairless arms and i feel that you know i feel if you want to shave shave Mm -hmm. do it because you want to do it not because other people or society is pressuring you into saying that's how you're you should appear Mm -hmm. so for me that was something that was really important because sometimes I just don't want to shave and sometimes I do and I shouldn't feel forced to do it because of how other people will portray me out in the world. So that is definitely, and that's something that I feel like is um, visually um, grasping for people when they are scrolling through Instagram. They're like, oh, that's me. Yeah, I don't always shave either. And it's something that I feel that is... um, personal yet universal at the same time for uh many women so that's kind of how that tends to reappear in my work gotcha part of the reason i wanted to ask you specifically about that is i especially going through high school and my first year of college i i was a swimmer so i experienced the opposite of that of oh so you had to shave everything yeah through i mean when there were big meets coming up most of the year i was like well i mean i was a teenager and really didn't get body hair until i was in my late teens but that's a whole nother issue that people put on you um but yeah so you know most of the year i would you know be like a normal guy and you know have body hair and things like that but there would be you know probably six times a year where i would have to shave my entire body and yeah you know and then like you come back to high school um which is traumatic enough and everybody yeah. else has you know every other guy has normal body hair at that point and you're you know smooth as a baby's bottom 
and you know there's this weird stigma from a guy's point of view that comes from that and it was it like i got to a point where it never bothered me but the definitely the first the first year of being on the swim team and having to do that was weird and it just it stuck with me and especially cuz i mean at that age i was 14 mm. so you know that's tough already in the middle of weird puberty at that time and and well, you know how high school was <laughs> yeah and i feel that's interesting too cuz um actually i was having a conversation recently with i forget who about the idea of gender norms, not just for women, but in general mm-hmm. um, amongst genders. And I feel that it it's interesting that, I'm, I mean, I hope that eventually they become dismantled and people could feel that, you know, they are a woman or they are a man in however they define that for themselves. And I feel that's something that's really important. And especially, and I find it interesting too, I haven't given it much thought until we started talking about it now, but how a lot of these stories that we pull from Mm -hmm. tend to come from those informative years of like middle school, high school, Mm -hmm. um, when we're changing and developing and doing all the bodily things, um, you know, physically that happened between the age of 10 and 20 very rapidly. Um, I find that interesting that it, I feel like a lot of people's stories of like, um, certain anxieties or certain, um, things that do bother them or that kind of get called back as they become an adult tend to come from that time period. I don't know what that means, but it's something that's interesting to me. Well, I think that's fairly universal. I think, you know, so you mentioned, and this is a weird tangent, but follow me here. You mentioned that you liked running and when you were in high school, you ran track and cross country and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you go out and run now, you probably, when you go out and run, want to run like when you were 17 or 18. But so, your body doesn't do that. Like, But in your mind, no. you're like, I should still be able to do this. Why can't I do this? So everybody yeah. gets stuck in their head and, and views themselves mentally as at a certain age. Yeah. And for running too. So after high school, I hated running just because I felt like there was this pressure to be incredibly fast and I wasn't. So I stopped for a long time. And then I, one of my friends, she was like, run a half marathon with me. And I was like, LOL. And she's like, if you can run three miles, you can train to then run a half marathon. Like if you can run three miles without, you know, needing to go to the hospital, you can train, you can essentially train to do a half marathon. And I, and I think like she knew exactly what to say. Cause she's like, I know you can run three miles. <laughs> so she was like, and I don't want to run this by myself. So she, um, so I ended up running a half marathon, but the beauty of it was that was the first time where it didn't matter how long it took me to run, you know, whether it was like, um, 400 meters or 800 meters or whatever it was, it was just like running for, the enjoyment of it. And yeah, and it got to the point where it's like, you've injured yourself way too many times to ever be able to run like a six minute mile ever again. And that's okay. The fact that you could still walk a mile is amazing. So yes, but there are times when I'm running and I'm like, man, that took me a long time. Like what is happening? And it's like, Hey, you were still able to do that. So don't be too hard on yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and anyway, so that whole conversation of like recalling back to those formative years, that's something that's interesting to me. That will start appearing in my new work. There you as, go. Uh, yeah. 
I'd like a byline on that. Yeah. <laughs> I will be like, reference our podcast chat. This is where this came from. Gotcha. So to kind of you know, wrap things up a little bit, you know, when you're pushing this new style, are there, are there other themes that you want to explore as well? Um, as I'm now that I'm doing a bit more painting, I think that I'm going to try to allow myself to be open to see what kind of comes out of me and on to the canvas, just because there are some limitations with my drawing style that kind of get lifted with painting. So in terms of like layering and dimension and shadowing, that is something that I always would have to work through in flat drawing than now in painting, not as much because you can layer. Mm -hmm. um, so nothing in particular that I'm like, ooh, this is something I want to do as I'm evolving, but I think that will be something that comes a bit um, naturally, more naturally as I work through pieces. Gotcha. Aside from the uh, the painting and things like that, do you have anything exciting coming up that uh, you're looking forward to that, that you're allowed to talk about? Yeah, uh, oh, I don't know if I could talk about it. That's always the tough part. You're like, I have so many exciting things, none of which I can say. Um, I've been doing a few fun like shoe collaborations, mm -hmm. which I think will be really fun when they come out, hopefully in the next few months. And also more objects. Um, I recently had a candle collaboration with Otherland. They are a candle company based in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So really having my artwork applied to things that are functional, that way they're a bit accessible as well. So if you may not be able to buy a print or a piece, you can buy something with art on it. That was something very important to me coming into this year is making my art as accessible as possible. Um, so a few objects coming out. Um, homewares, shoes, I'm really excited about in the next six months. So, yeah. Cool. Well, where can people find you online? So the best place to find my work most up to date is on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it's just Amber underscore Vittoria, two T's, no C. Um, the next best place is my website, which is AmberVittoria.com. I'm also on Twitter, but I would definitely say that I give more of my attention to Instagram and my website. Awesome. Amber, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed this. Me too. This is awesome. So many new ideas. I love that. <laughs> and uh, go out and hug some necks. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, have a good rest of uh, your night. Thanks. You too. You can find out more about Amber on Twitter at Amber underscore Vittoria. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with her. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod. And follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA over at CreativeSouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And... 
Remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com slash creative south. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.